So welcome, everyone. So we do have a few people on Zoom, um, and we'll leave them. Uh, I don't think I don't know if they could see us right now because um, we've got the screen shared. But I, I saw Joe and Betty and uh, Loretta, and I don't know who else is there. Can can someone unmute and let us know that you can hear us? Okay, perfect. Thanks, Rita. Thank you. I have an echo. There's quite an echo. Okay, yeah. I'll see what I can do about that. Um, but if you all mute, I'm, I'm going to hope that helps. Um, so we've been going through a process of, uh, through Lent, talking about death and dying. And uh, one Sunday, about three weeks ago, there was a video of Heather Shantz um, that, that we shared, and you might recognize, I think this is a quote from that video. Um, so her daughter Marianne is with us. Uh, Mary, Marianne works in Covenant Health, um, and uh, we know her, well, our first connection was with her husband's mother in Toronto. <laughs> at the church that Megan and I uh, both worked at. And, and then uh, Marianne and James moved here and we got to know them in Edmonton uh, through that connection, which was pretty cool. Uh, so uh, they've become friends and Marianne and James are at Christchurch. And uh, so you're in the Anglican fold. Uh, you don't have to be, but that's nice. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll let, maybe I'll let you say more about your work, lest I totally demolish what you actually do. Um, but, uh, you know, I was thinking, as we've been talking on Tuesday nights at the Death Cafe, we re we've realized there can be a huge difference in people's thinking about death. Some have not thought of it at all. Others, usually by force, have thought a lot about it for different reasons. And... Um, Marianne for her mother's work in palliative care, um, and and now your work in that field, it's been part of your life, and so we're just looking forward to hearing what you bring us tonight, and uh, I think we'll have some time for conversation after she presents. So, thanks for being here, Marianne. Here again. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. I'd forgotten how far that connection goes back. And uh, my mother-in-law, when we moved here, said, there's someone I need you to meet who is Megan. <laughs> you two would be friends. And sure enough. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think we've known each other since before any of us had, had kids. Uh, and I appreciate the chance to come here. And I've heard great things about this community. Um, I'm calling this personal and professional reflections on end of life, so um, I wanted to start by saying a little bit more about, uh, oh, I don't know, John, if it's advancing. Uh, oh, there we go, okay. About the personal part of it. Um, so the personal part of it is, is my mom, Heather. 
who was uh, diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in um, January of 2019. Um, and this was just a few months after retiring as a, a, a clinical nurse specialist in palliative care in Calgary, where she'd spent the last 15 years um, of her career. Um, and I guess if I were going to tell you three things about my mom, I'd tell you that she was very passionate about her work in palliative care. Um, she had a really strong Christian faith, um, and she loved, loved her family, um, her kids and her grandkids. Um, and so uh, we have had the experience then um, of kind of three years ago, finding out that she didn't have all that long uh, to live. And at the time, um, she was quite sick, and we thought it might be months. Um, and she ended up getting on a, a targeted therapy that, that gave her amazing quality of life for two and a half years. Um, and so we made lots of great memories. My kids were eight and five when she was diagnosed, and so they're now 11 and eight. And those three years were sort of bonus time for us, where we just kind of tried to make the most uh, of that time. And unfortunately, COVID cramped things a little bit. Um, my mom had taken her oldest grandson uh, on a, a trip, just the two of them, to Toronto, to a Blue Jays game in Niagara Falls. And my daughter, Charlotte, who's next in, in the grandchild order, was supposed to go with her to Prince Edward Island in Halifax, and they had to cancel um, that trip. But she did everything she could to, to make memories in that time, especially for, for the grandkids. Um, and it gave her a lot of joy that, that they're all going to remember her. They all know her really, really well and have lots of great memories with her. Um, and so then my mom, uh, the treatment stopped working for her last summer, and, um, and, uh, and she, she still did pretty well uh, for a while, and she was home still at Christmas, and we had a great Christmas, and then she deteriorated quite rapidly um, and died at the end of January. Um, so that's just a little bit of context. I'm going to say more about her and about what that was like, um, but that just gives you a little bit of context. Um, about, about her. Um, no, I don't know, it's not working. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, I'll just. So professionally, um, I have also, just in the last year and a half, um, started working in the field of palliative care, and it's a bit of a, a strange journey that I took to get there, and um, I had been working, trained as a historian and teaching at McEwen for many years, and then decided to make a a career move and ended up getting a job with the Covenant Health Palliative Institute as a project coordinator um, uh, on a, a grant-funded project um, to raise public awareness of, of palliative care. And so, of course, my mom was thrilled to that <laughs> in that last year of her life that somehow I had ended up in her, her own field of, of work. Um, and Sorry if that writing is a little bit small, but just to give you a little bit of context, so this is a project, three-year project funded by the government of Alberta um, to increase public understanding of palliative care through resources adapted for use in Alberta in collaboration with community partners. Um, and a little bit of a definition there because palliative care is not all that well understood, which is the reason for the project. Um, so palliative care is comprehensive support to enhance the quality of life of patients facing life-limiting illness from diagnosis to end of life. And so I'd kind of highlight the comprehensive support that can be physical, emotional, social, spiritual support 
Palliative care is often provided by teams of people who are medical people, nursing people, social workers, chaplains, um, and it can include professionals and it can include the wider community, and it, it really is an emphasis on quality of life. Um, and, uh, and, and it includes care for not just the patient, but their family. Whole, whole person care is often how um, people in the area of palliative care talk about it. And it's both an approach that you know, family doctors can use, a palliative approach that's really emphasizing how can we ensure that you have the best quality of life possible. Um, and there are also palliative care specialists who are experts in managing complex symptoms and in relieving pain and, and, re and relieving suffering, which could be, it could be emotional suffering or, or spiritual suffering as well as physical suffering. And the rationale for this is that it's often poorly understood and not always offered to or accessed by people who can benefit from it. And so, you know, palliative care as a field has been around for about um, 40, 50 years. Um, and uh, there's still a big push to educate healthcare providers about what palliative care is. And, and that's the part of it that it's not always offered to people. Um, there can be an emphasis on cure that it means that healthcare providers don't actually look at other aspects of care. And there can be resistance by people to accepting palliative care if there's misperceptions, like it means, um, you know, my care, healthcare providers are giving up on me, um, or, you know, <laughs> it means I'm, I'm kind of doomed um, as opposed to the, what, it, what it has to offer. So the, the project is, is intended to um, focus on the public side of it and improving public understanding. And there's also work happening on the healthcare provider side to help ensure healthcare providers are also um, educated and, and offering um, palliative care. So um, there's four areas of focus for us. Raising public awareness of palliative care is a pretty broad undertaking. And so we've identified sort of four focal points for us in our, in our work over the next couple of years. So one of those is to increase comfort, talking about death and dying, and so this kind of thing is great, and Death Cafe is, is part of that, and it can be talking about death and dying in more formal settings or informal settings. Um, it can be with your family, with friends, with strangers, you know, um, it can be sort of social and cultural conversations. You know, are, are, are we hearing about death-related topics on the news? Are we seeing it in film and on television? You know, how, as a society, can we, can we um, talk about death and dying? It can mean many things, um, but that's one of our, our focal points. The, uh, another is to improve public understanding of palliative care so people know what it has to offer. Um, and what it means and can maybe ask for it um, if it's something that they might be able to benefit from. The third area of focus for us is building community support for palliative care. So, um, and I'll speak to this a little bit more on the next slide, but the idea that um, death is not just a medical event. Death is something that happens to all of us. It's a natural part of life and we live in communities and we're you know, even when you're actively dying, um, you may spend 5% of your time being cared for by a medical professional. And the rest of that time is time for yourself, for your family, for your community. So how are we supporting each other when we're, when we're sick, when we're dying, when we're caring for people who are sick or dying? 
um, when we're grieving after the loss of somebody. So seeing death not just as a medical event, but as a social event that affects us all and that we all have a, a part in. And then the fourth area of focus is encouraging advanced care planning, which is a bit of jargon I should have cut out, but just planning for our care, thinking about what we value, what's important to us, um, you know, maybe making a will or designating someone who would make healthcare decisions for us, but you know, some of that sort of planning ahead stuff that can make things easier for us and for our, our loved ones um, if, we, if we get seriously ill. So we are informed by something called the Compassionate Communities Movement. Um, and I think that this is something that would be of interest to church communities because I think church communities traditionally and typically already are compassionate communities. And the idea of a compassionate community um, is really captured in this quote here. I live in a community where everybody recognizes that we all have a role to play in supporting each other in times of crisis and loss. People are ready, willing, and confident to have conversations about living and dying well and to support each other in emotional and practical ways. Um, so, you know, I think it's at the most basic level, um, kind of being able to ask for and accept help, um, to, to be part of a community and to support each other who are, part of, who are a part of our community. Um, the Compassionate Communities Movement was something that sort of a, a was founded in the early um, uh, 21st century in the UK and Australia and has kind of grown from there. And, and the idea is that um, we build circles of care. That's that diagram there. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the inner core of that circle is the person with an illness. And then their, um, their inner network and then their outer network and their wider community, and then the service delivery professionals, um, and then public policy and, and all of that layer. So all of those are a part of it, but that community level support that kind of builds um, sort of a supportive um, kind of uh, layer for people so that you don't feel isolated or you don't feel alone. Um, and so the Compassionate Communities Movement is is really just trying to encourage that, that we all see ourselves as, as part of that. And it can be schools, workplaces, churches, um, you know, any neighborhoods. It, it, it can be happen anywhere um, in different ways. So what I thought I'd do just for the last uh, kind of rest of this talk is to take those areas of focus and talk about what that looked like um, for my mom and for my family. Um, and, and I do, I, you know, I think um, as my mom was going through her, her journey, um, a lot of people told her and told us that, um, that they admired the way she was living through this. And so um, not to hold her up as sort of the ultimate example, but I personally took lessons from watching her um, that I hope will carry through um, in my own life. And, um, and I know John and Megan have, heard, have talked with me about it, and, and you know, I think that's part of the reason John asked me here. So just kind of what I, what I learned from the way my mom approached her death um, and, and how that... Um, 
made it easier for us. So one of the things she did, first of all, was talk openly about death and dying. Um, she was very uh, open uh, when she got her diagnosis, um, talking to her friends and talking to us. Um, and, you know, so I think, you know, for my kids who are in that picture with her, um, you know, that it wasn't as if we were talking about it all the time, but we would talk about it periodically when it mattered, when something new was happening for grandma or, um, you know, if one of us was feeling sad about something or if we wanted to make sure we planned special events together. Um, and I really think that made a difference that, that they were prepared for what was coming by having this chance to talk about it and to hear grandma talk about it. Um, you know, and, and so the way that they are now able to talk about it. Um, after my mom's funeral, my son George said, you know, it, grandma wasn't afraid to die, but it's sad we don't have longer with her. And so he was able to articulate that, and I think that was something that, a gift that she gave to, to our kids and to us um, to just be able to, to talk about it. Um, it gave us time to have conversations that we wanted to have. Um, and, uh, you know, by being open about it, it also was a gift for her because people came to visit her. People knew what was coming, and so they had time to plan a trip to visit her. They had, you know, they planned Zoom calls, you know, with her two closest cousins in Nova Scotia and New Jersey. And, and so they had a chance to do these things because they were sort of in the loop and they knew and they knew what was coming. And so I think it was something that was helpful for her, but it was also sort of a gift for the rest of us that, that she was open and letting us in and preparing us um, for what was coming. In terms of, you know, um, you know <laughs> most patients don't have the level of understanding of palliative care that my mom did, having worked as a palliative uh, clinician for, for many years. Um, but what it meant was that when she was diagnosed with metastatic cancer three years ago, she requested a palliative consult right away. She knew that it would give her access to specialists who could help with her symptoms, who could make sure she got home and out of hospital as soon as possible. Um, it got, as a family, it gave us access to, you know, a, a social workers who could talk up with my mom and about, you know, family dynamics and, and navigating what might come up. Um, uh, so she had, you know, palliative home care that came and, and made sure she didn't have to go to as, you know, as few appointments as possible outside of her home. Um, you know, that, that could deliver uh, medication from the pharmacy directly to her house. Um, it also meant that she had access to people who understood thinking about illness, you know, not in terms of cure, because we all knew that wasn't going to happen, but in terms of how can we maximize the quality of your life and make sure you're living um, really well. Um, and so, you know, when it came to decisions like you know, should she take non-curative chemo at the end um, and, and risk nerve damage that would mean she couldn't play piano or knit or, you know, wake, might compromise her sleep? 
Um, she ha was able to talk about that with people who understood that there's more to life than potentially living a few extra weeks if the flip side is symptoms that are unbearable for you to cope with or compromise your ability to do the things you love. Um, and so I think, um, again, that just actually maximized her quality of life and made it easier for us. Um, she had kind of, I think, decided in her mind that she would prefer to go to hospice when she could no longer um, do her personal care, when she could no longer shower herself at home. Um, and so she only actually went to hospice six days before she died, but, um, you know, it meant that we had a chaplain there who would come and pray with us, and, um, and, and so it really did kind of build that support for us that was really, really valuable. That one picture of my sisters playing cards with my mom is the night before she went to hospice. Uh, and then the picture on the right is uh, a Peter's drive-in coconut milkshake, which she, she loved. And so um, that's actually um, at the hospice. We had amazing community support. Um, my mom set up, uh, the bottom left there, it's a website called Lots of Helping Hands. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, but it's sort of a, a communication tool and a way to, um, you know, potentially get help. Um, people, you know, lots of people when she was diagnosed would say, you know, what can I bring and what can I do? Um, and so on this website, you can set up a calendar where you say, you know, I need someone to drive me to an appointment on Tuesday or you know, if someone could bring me a dinner on Friday night, that would be really helpful. And it was just amazing. I, you know, as soon as she would post something, people were, were signing up to help in these ways. And it was really amazing for her, you know, if she knew grandkids were coming for the weekend and one of her friends was going to bring cookies, that was just lovely. Um, and it was something really meaningful and tangible that, that friends could do for her, and they knew it was something that she needed. So that was just one example of how she was able to communicate, but also the really practical help um, that people offered um, to us in that way. Um, and on the right um, is a, a drive-by at the Foothills Hospital. Her palliative care colleagues, when she had decided to go to hospice, they arranged for her transportation from her home to the hospice, and they arranged for it to drive by the Foothills Hospital. And they came out and, and they greeted her with signs and said goodbye. Um, as she as she drove by, it actually did two loops because she didn't get time to to say goodbye to everybody on the first um, go round. But you know, they stood there for half an hour. Um, you know, medical professionals during COVID um, because they wanted to come out and show their their support for her. Um, you know, it was a little bit maybe unusual because she was only 68, and many of her colleagues, you know, were still were younger and still working and and in that field, um, but it was just so wonderful. And again, it was, a, it was a gift for them, but it was an amazing gift for her and for us as well to have that opportunity and to see that support. Uh, planning ahead. So my mom was a planner. <laughs> so I don't want to suggest that everybody needs to plan. I don't think I could plan as well as my mom did um, when, it, when it comes to my own. Uh, end of life, but um, I teased her, you know, you can write your own obituary, mom, but it doesn't mean we'll necessarily mean we'll use it. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but she did everything. She, she wrote her obituary, she paid for her cemetery plot, she planned her funeral, the music she wanted, and um, then the service. And, you know, I, I kind of laughed at her because I thought it was something she was doing for herself because she was a planner. And she would tell you that she took joy in doing these things because she took joy in picking, you know, the song that she sang to us as babies in her arms um, for her funeral. Um, but, she, you know, it was only after she died that I realized what a gift it was that we didn't have to, you know, take a couple days to to plan the funeral and think about those things and wonder, what would mom want? Um, because she'd already done those things. Um, and it really was a gift to us when we were in those early hours and days after after her death um, that she'd, she'd done everything. She'd taken care of it all. Um, and so, again, I think it, it worked both ways. It was something that she did personally take take some joy in. Um, and helped her prepare for her death. It helped her to think about it. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, maybe not everybody could or would want to do that, but it was also a gift, a gift for us that definitely um, made things easier. Um, and the other thing I would say, you know, that quote, um, preparing for the worst did not prevent the best from happening. Um, that was the advice that she kind of would sometimes give, give patients or families who maybe were hesitant about, about things. Um, but she definitely was able to make the most of that time that she had. And the two things weren't um, contradictory to her to be preparing her funeral and also living life to the fullest. She felt like you could do both of those things. Um, and you could... You could um, and I think there was still hope in that. And I think that's also something um, that I've, I've taken away is, um, you know, a terminal a diagnosis doesn't mean, you know, life doesn't end at the diagnosis. And there's still a lot of good living that happens afterwards. And there's still things to hope for. Um, my mom kept hoping for things up until the very end. She wasn't hoping for a cure, but she was hoping we'd all be able to get together at Christmas. You know, she was hoping um, that... Uh, that my brothers and sisters and I would all be there with her at the end. She was hoping that she'd have one more Peter's drive-in milkshake. Um, she was hoping to have a spa bath at the hospice. So, you know, there are things that you can hope for, um, and, and maybe smaller things, but, but still things that brought her joy and, and made life really, really meaningful and didn't mean that by acknowledging her death um, that she was giving up in any way. I just came across this recently, and it kind of spoke to me. Um, these five things make loss traumatic. Feeling alone, feeling helpless, feeling hopeless, feeling confused, and feeling shocked. Everything you can do to address these will help you and your family. And it, it connected with me, and I think that almost intuitively, a lot of the things that my mom did um, and the things that we're trying to do, I think, with this project actually address a lot of those things. Um, you know, if it, there's, um, you know, if you have that community support, if you don't feel alone, if you're able to talk about how you're feeling, um, if you're able to 
have you know professional support that helps answer questions, um, you know um, that can help help you through uh, a lot of this and and finding things to hope for, finding the things that still um, make life meaningful and joyful for you. So that's what I had planned to say. Um, and so I guess I'll invite you, if John, if you want to open it up, I also have um, some questions that you might want to think about. Um, but welcome to, to take the conversation um, in any way you'd like it to go. Maybe to use the Death Cafe question, is there anything from Marianne's talk that you